I warn my students when like they're on the founder track and they're signing up to like the 80 hours a week, don't see your friends, don't see your family, ramen noodles. Like just be careful. That's the story. And that might be the first six months, but you can't last 10 years. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I have a rule where I consume every piece of content that my guest has ever put out. <laughs> and I didn't realize that I was running into the content king. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine how long that would take, dude. It's a good thing I was jet lagged last night because I was up till three in the morning, midnight Pacific time, just cranking through everything Mark Roberge. And it's been really fun going down that journey. The hardest part that I had in this whole thing was that my other rule of prep is that I have to keep my actual notes to two pages or less. <laughs> Otherwise, it just ends up being Q&A. Where do you go? So uh, I'm glad we have some time today. I appreciate it. The other kind of cool thing that happened was, so I've never been to Harvard campus before. Cool. And I did like a little lap before I came in. And the Arthur Rock Center for Entrepreneurship is right behind this building. I know. That's where my office used to be. Yeah, that's the entrepreneurship. And do, yeah. you, do you know the story of Kleiner and Arthur Rock? I didn't Rock? know what happened. Dude. <laughs> okay, so I wrote- I know he, like- all, I don't know much about him other than he was, I think he wrote one of the first checks into Apple or something. Like William Shockley was like a PhD scientist guy. He recruited Eugene Kleiner, Arthur Rock, and like six other people into this like basically go build semiconductors thing. Then they started a company called Fairchild Camera, which then became Fairchild Semiconductor, which Eugene Kleiner was a co-founder of. <laughs> That's insane, man. Yeah. And so that like the semiconductor industry was where Kleiner, where KP got its, where it yeah. got its start. The rest of the eight all became incredible entrepreneurs as well. One of them went off and started Intel, which we then invested in. Kleiner has a lot of ties to campus. Well, yeah, if we have time, we can walk around. Awesome. I can uh, make it back for a class up North Shore, but I'd like to be able to have some time. We can walk oh, it sounds, around sounds good, man. I guess I'm welcoming you to the show and you're welcoming me to, yeah. to your office. Is yeah. this the office? To, I guess so. There's no one here. It's the summertime. <laughs> no one I, uh, it is funny because it's not a very crowded office. So I usually have this whole building to myself. And it's this crazy. is for, I learned a new word today for practicing and maritime professors. Is yeah, that right? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. And I got the like kind of eye roll when I was like, oh, what's maritime? Who, and they're like, oh, retired. The, 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 okay. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh. Those are like the, I guess the retired yeah. folks that hardly ever come in. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. So it shows how much I know. Well, dude, I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to doing this. I start these all off the exact same way. So. So I'll read your background back to you. All right. You got your BS in mechanical engineering from Lehigh, started as a coder. And then, actually, can I pause right here? Did you get into MIT? Yes. But you didn't go. Right. Until your MBA. Right. What's the story? <laughs> <laughs> You're 18. There's more attractive girls in Lehigh. Stick, I don't know. Stick it's it to the like man. more fun. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, just like you're 18. I did, 
Was it the best decision? Probably not. But I, to be honest with you, like I'd worked my ass off in high school. I was in all the AP classes. I did actually get an MIT and I was like, okay, I'm going to MIT. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly wasn't looking forward to college. I was stressed out about it. I thought I was going to be working like hundred hour weeks, you know, it just, and I was like, maybe I should just not go there. Yeah. And in hindsight, it's crazy, you know, not to do that. Lee has a great school. It was a great program. I still worked 80 hour weeks and I finished really high up in the class and learned a ton. I guess like one thing that positive that probably came out of that decision though is Lehigh was a very Greek school and it obviously had like equal engineering plus business plus arts in terms of, so I probably ended up being a much more outgoing, well-rounded individual, which probably helped me quite a bit and I might not have developed those skills. And I ended up back at MIT anyway. Yep. But so who knows if it was the right or wrong and what I'd never I'm heard happy the story. with my life so far. I, but like, yeah, I went through at least 10 hours worth of Mark Robert and it never <laughs> came up. So um, this is funny. Anyway, then you go to Accenture, you're a consultant, you spend three years doing that. Out of that, you then go to a startup that was founded by former Accenture people called Vetro, which was a consulting startup. Which is crazy, right? That's how little we knew about scalable venture capital investments. Is lit and Greylock backed it. Wow. And Sigma Partners. This was not like a wow. pony show. Wow, wow, wow. This was like, oh yeah. That's how crazy <laughs> the two thousand raise was. Well, and ironic given what you talk about and write about now, it's like the opposite crazy. of predictable exactly. revenue exactly. engines. Wow. Um, then you go to MIT. This is in two thousand and four. Get your MBA. During that time, you start a company called PawSpot. We're going to talk about that because I think it's very instructive to the foundation of your career. Then you started as employee number four at a company called HubSpot. And you basically took that company to the moon along with a few of the core team members. Company today has 6,000 plus employees, took it from zero to 100 million in revenue. Market cap today is 15 billion in its heyday. Let's call it six months ago was probably 40 plus billion. 10,000 plus customers from zero, 425 plus people in your sales organization. Absolutely incredible. Then in 2015, probably near the tail end of your CRO ship at HubSpot, you started as a professor of go-to-market at Harvard, which is why we're sitting on campus today. You also in 2018 co-founded a venture firm called Stage 2 Capital. How was that? Yeah. Perfect. You've Uh, done your homework. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely have done my I didn't even know some of those dates. (laughs) I didn't remember when I left HubSpot, so thank you for reminding me. (laughs) Can you talk about Filter Queen? (laughs) That's a name from the past. Yeah, you found that one, huh? Yeah, I guess it was close to my first sales job. You know, there's always like little childhood experiences you have that once you learn how to sell later in life, you realize that, holy cow, you were learning to sell then. And I was just like home for the summer. I think it was between freshman and sophomore year, between sophomore and junior year. And I was like, I got to get a job. And I went into the newspaper. This is like, what, 96, you know? So I literally opened up the classifieds and it was like some sort of like office job. I went in there like, oh, that job's not for you. You should sell our product. It was a vacuum cleaner called Filter Queen. It was actually a sick vacuum cleaner. (laughs) It like, you know, and this is like, what, 25 years ago, almost 30 years ago? It, it costs like $2,000, man. I think my mom had bought a vacuum cleaner for 40 bucks. And I'm trying to hawk these $2,000 vacuum cleaners. It is like an hour and a half demo. You literally take their vacuum cleaner and go over a piece of rug 50 times in front of the, at their house. I'm like, I go and I grab their vacuum cleaner. 
And I take the filter queen with a little filter on it and I go over it once and I pull it out and show all the dust that their vacuum cleaner is not picking up. And just like, this is in your air, your kids, you know, like I drop a steel ball on the floor and the filter queen just picks it up, doesn't get jammed. And I even, it was so cheesy. I had to, everyone said no. I had to call into the office from a phone where the customer could hear me. And there was this whole bit we did, which was like, oh, they don't want to do it. They're about to send their son to college. And then they would come back at me with the 0% down financing gig that I'd go back to them and it would spin into a 15 minute. Knowing what I know about sales now, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so cheesy. But I had some, you know, got some wounds out there and did it. That's incredible. Uh, that's exactly what I was hoping for. Um, <laughs> your dad was a sales coach? What does that mean, like a sales coach? Was he in sales and then he became a sales coach? Yeah. Okay. yeah. So he was like old school too. I think his first job was Cutco Knives, which I, you know, I think had actually a phenomenal program. He learned Sandler along the way somewhere, did a lot of like high-end furniture selling. Then he went into bill collecting, which I didn't make the connection there, but he told me the whole reason why bills don't get paid is because they were sold wrong. So they were all, there's a big connection there. He had his own company. And then, yeah, he moved more. He went over to Objective Management Group for a while, which is more of a formalized, you know, assessment tool. And then he was on his own, you know, especially during my HubSpot run, he had more interest in the tech side and actually helped introduce me to some of our early successful sellers that he had coached. And I think it gave him confidence or just like knowledge that this tech sector is pretty cool and everything he'd learned in the non-tech sector is highly applicable and so he just started coaching like a lot of people around tech. He's very, very good. Probably the best I know at taking someone who's extremely smart and wants to sell, but's never sold before. Like these Stanford MBAs and like engineers and teaching them how to sell. He's really good at that. How proud is he? How surreal must it be for him seeing what you're doing now? Must be crazy. Have you ever brought him in as like a guest speaker or anything? I brought him into HBS for class, oh, okay, but okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It might be weird with the guest speaking, but... That's so cool. I want to start with PawSpot. Let me just reframe this for you and tell me where I mess up. But basically there was, as I understand it, when you were at MIT, there was a, you were in an entrepreneurship class mm -hmm. that had a competition where there was 12 companies that were to be presented amongst the students. Two would be picked, and those that were shortlisted to those two would be the ones that everyone else rallies behind. Almost. It was 50 students showed up. We all posted an idea, so 50 ideas, on the class board or whatever. That assignment last that night was read all 50, vote on three. And then the top 12 got picked to be CEOs that semester. And so the next class, the 12 of us that got picked, went up front, three-minute elevator pitch, picked a corner, and everyone joined a company. And he basically were writing a business plan during that semester and learning from a ton of great entrepreneurs along the way. And the two that were generally picked were yours and some and they somebody were, else's? Well, there were, go? there were 12 that were picked. Yeah. And but like, how did it get narrowed down? It didn't there? get narrowed down to two from there. What I think you heard was mine was picked, which was PawSpot, which we can talk about. One of the 12. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, another one of the 12s was HubSpot. <laughs> so Darmesh Shah, okay. who's one of the co-founders of HubSpot, like we sat in class together and he presented HubSpot. It's a pretty different idea at the time. Same logo, same brand. It was funny. And, you know, we hit it off and 
we'd grab lunch every week or so and talk about our ventures and we liked each other and over the year like after some time he did an investing in PostBot because he'd had an exit prior to school and he asked that I help him with HubSpot one day a week when it was really just him and he had a lot of other people including Brian Halligan like in the periphery talking about joining and doing things and I was just hanging out with him half a day a week talking about HubSpot. I guess one of the questions that came to my mind when I was listening to this all did you know he had the stuff like honest answer when you met him like this guy's pretty smart or were you, was there more to it when you met him? Could you tell? Definitely. I'm, I'm trying to think if it, the answer is absolutely top 10% or number one. You know, like he was super smart. He was already was like, off the charts. I was also like, first off, I didn't have tons of instincts yet as a 27-year-old MBA student as to what I should be looking for. There's a ton of smart people at MIT, right? So it's just like there was a minority of people who are as like, yeah, like, I don't know if they really got it. Like, a lot of people had it, you know? And Darmesh was a star in entrepreneur classes because he had had an exit before. He was in the Sloan Fellows program, which is, like, more of the, I guess, the equivalent of exec ed in other programs, but it's a full year, and they integrate it with the MBAs, so we do take classes with them. And he was a star in all those entrepreneur classes because of experience. And he was writing checks. He was investing. It's insane. Right? So that was unusual. So all of that, I was like, yeah, this... It was a privilege to spend time with him. That's sure. really cool. Yeah. So he writes a check into PawSpot, and in return for the check, he basically says, do me a solid one day a week for a couple yeah, hours. Yeah, gentleman's agreement. Just like help. You need some money. Like you're an entrepreneur. Like I'll pay you a fee. You then what happens? use the money. Then what happens? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, first off, like the PawSpot thing, just to talk about it, this is way early in social media and social networking. Like we're talking the most popular social media site is like classmates.com and MySpace. Facebook is literally getting started. I like meet Eduardo at, for a beer across the street here, like Harvard Yard, where they're talking about launching American University or something after Harvard. You know, it's like super early. And I'm super intrigued by social networking. And that's where I come up with this like... Eduardo being the co-founder of Facebook. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's like, that's why I come up with this like, oh, the pet space would be cool. It was a little too more like sharing economy. So I raise the money. I run the thing for a year, year and a half, including after graduation, but I'm still doing the one day a week with HubSpot. And, you know, a combination of misexecution on my part, the category not being evolved yet. In misexecution, that's like nothing for a 27-year-old. I mean, I think a lot of people, we just didn't know like how to do this stuff back then. And I just can't get my series A. And now I'm like six months out of school and personal life is happening for me. You know, had a baby, pregnant again, another baby, another baby's on the way. I had to buy a house. I'm stressed out. Like I'm running this paw spot thing. I'm working one day a week for HubSpot. Loan and from business school probably. Yeah, $100,000 in loans, literally like probably $5,000 in my bank account. It was crazy. And then I'm like, ah, oh, I, I got, I'm going to have to do something more stable now. And like for a guy like myself who's like just loves entrepreneurship, I would have not liked to have gone to a big company. I thought I was going to have to. Unfortunately, Brian Halligan had been recruited in at that point to run HubSpot for Darmesh with Darmesh, and he was going to Brian was going to be CEO. When Brian met me, he was like, "Ooh, glad we got this guy Mark every Thursday, but don't need any strategy advice anymore. Just need customers. So go sell. I got you for four to six hours a week. Just go sell." And so. That's what I did for like eight months while I was running PostBot toward the end after meeting Brian. And 
you know, eight months later, he had sold 20 or 30. I had sold 20 or 30. And we got like a bunch of customers paying us 100, 200 bucks a month. It was like interesting, you know. And he didn't know I was in toward the end of my PawSpot journey. And he was just like, wrote me a note, like, you should quit your PawSpot thing and come join us. We're about to raise a Series A. You know, we've got term sheets. And join us as like the fourth employee. He took me to a Red Sox game to recruit me. He had really nice tickets on the front row. And, of course, I played it cool, not admitting that I was cooked in like a month just to try to negotiate a decent salary and position and did that. And honestly, like I thought it was going to be a four-month gig where I saved up some money, get, you know, stabilized my life a little bit. And then nine years later, we're ringing the bell. Mm-hmm. So crazy. Crazy. I'm just going to pick apart a ton of questions I have about HubSpot. One thing that struck me was that in the early days, you have mentioned that the second hire on the marketing team, which was employee number 20 or so, Something like that, yep. was a journalist for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Why'd you do that? Yeah, I mean, that was all Volpe, my counterpart in marketing. So Volpe joined as the third employee, and he was a buddy from MIT as well. And, you know, Brian pushed us to think very uniquely and differently from other companies. And that's an area that he pushed Mike in. And Mike wouldn't have joined had he not believed in that. HubSpot probably shouldn't exist or shouldn't have existed if we didn't generate most of our business through the marketing that we were preaching. You know, like a lot of marketers would have walked in and just done like what was traditional at that time, like the events and paid ads and direct mail, whatever was working then. And Halligan was like, we have to do it 100% the way we're preaching. We've got a blog and all that. And we wrote all wrote the first blogs and realized that like marketing isn't about like setting up a trade show booth anymore. It's not about managing a PR agency. It's about great writing. You know, and this is something I preach to this day internationally. And I get love letters months later on how much that changed their company was like, holy cow, I shouldn't go look for like 20-year veteran in marketing that knows how to run a direct mail campaign. I should go someone that just got laid off in a newspaper or a magazine because they're a brilliant writer and have them come in and just interview us about what we're seeing in our industry and write good stuff. So that's what it was. It was just to show, prove a point and like do it really differently. It's like, this is the new way of marketing. We're going to hire someone with no marketing experience who's a journalist. After the first year that you were there, how many customers, how much revenue? Give me like a sense of where the business was at. I mean, when I came in, you know, again, I'd been working part-time. So we'd gone, like when I was working part-time with five customers and like 10,000 in revenue. And that year we catapulted it. We probably got it to like 30 or 40 with a couple hundred thousand in revenue. Then when I came in, it was something like, Maybe I came in when they were 200,000 and we went to like 1.3 and then we went to probably something in the four range and then we went to something probably in the 10 or 12 range. Like we were double tripling, mm-hmm. you know, it was on the right trajectory. And like I remember Brian put up his, one of his big wins before HubSpot was PTC and he was not like an executive there. I mean, he grew up to be an executive over time, but he wasn't like that early. But he would show like the revenue line of PTC in the early days and we were kind of benchmarked against that. That makes sense. One of the things that was very surprising to me that I learned was that at some point after the first year, 
it was obvious that there was a there there with this business. So Halligan yeah. comes to you. You're probably 29, maybe yeah, 28, maybe yeah, like, like that, yeah. maybe 29. 29. Yeah, right. And you have like three or four reps at that point. And he says, all right, Mark, go hire 20 more people. Most 29-year-olds that I know in that seat are like, how about 30? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. we have it. You didn't. You did the opposite. Actually, maybe I'll be more specific. Did you not say like, hey, let me go to my reps first and tell them you have a quarter to be like more efficient yeah, with the leads right. that we have? Yeah, this was... And this was a little bit of a different time. So this was a, later in HubSpot, about year seven. Oh, this was much We were later. moving into the CRM. But we can hit this right now because I think it's very important. We haven't talked about this publicly enough. And it's an interesting story that might inspire some tests from folks. So we're seven years in. I think we're close to $100 million in revenue, but all through the marketing software. Yep. And... We've got the strategic decision around growth, like second acts type things. And can you pause? What is HubSpot? Like just for the audience listening, just so that we can frame up. What yeah, marketing SaaS company yeah. that in general helps small businesses get found online yep. where people are looking. Yep. And the way you do that obviously is you stand up and execute a good blog and social media and web strategy. And so it provides all the tools to do that. Got it. Okay, yep. sorry. Continue. Yeah. So at the time, we were only in the marketing arena providing this collection, this platform of a blog tool, a website CMS, an analytics tool, a landing page tool, a social media tool, an email tool, all together. And we had this strategic decision, do we move upstream, which most SaaS companies were doing at that time. You know, once you hit like 50, 100 million, you did that in the mid-market, let's move up to the big people now, like the big Fortune 500 and make a lot of money. Or we could go horizontally, stay in the small business arena, and add something like a CRM, which would be complimentary, move into the sales tech space. And everyone wanted to go upstream except Brian and Darmesh. Me, CMO, CFO, the entire board, easy, go upstream. And Brian and Darmesh didn't. And of course, they won as co-founders. They, it was their bet. And the main reason was they'd always been big readers of Blue Ocean Strategy and making sure that you're playing in markets that are, you have an advantage and are less competitive. And they saw upstream in the MarTech space, the marketing and software space. They saw, you know, Oracle buy Aloka. They saw Marketo growing upstream. They saw Adobe buy one. They saw Microsoft buy one. And it's like, that's just going to be a bloodbath. But we, what are we good at HubSpot? We get whatever it was, 50,000 inbound leads a month of small businesses that no one else has and no one else can get that like overnight. Let's just use that and stay downstream and go into the CRM sector. That's what we did. And Brian basically said, Mark, you team up with Christopher O'Donnell, one of our really strong product leaders. Now CPO at Thrive. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> now <laughs> CPO right. at Thrive. So he, he ended up being a CPO at HubSpot yeah. for a couple of years. And then now he's over at Thrive, one of the client or Perkins portfolios. And he was a great partner and learned a ton from him. And so he, Brian was like, I don't want to see you guys. Like, we're doing Clay Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma. Here's budget for 20 people. Make a most of engineers, but have a couple customer success people. Go into a different office with a different brand and a different finance stack and tech stack and friggin' build the CRM. And let's go. Keep it separate. I don't want the big business to slow you down. So we did. We went over these. Like, half your hires can be from us, and half the hires need to be from the outside. 
So pick your team and go. So we did that. And it went well. Like we built like a PLG type thing. We wanted it to be PLG and they wanted it to be PLG. And so your story, Juman, comes in where it worked. And now we had like a nice PLG funnel going. And I don't know, we'd, you know, the first year we got it to like a million or two in revenue. And Brian was like, okay, get it to like seven this year, you know, and then get it to 20 after that. And the point you're saying is he's like, you got budget for 20 reps to get you to the seven. And I was like, great. I'm like, I'll take the budget for 20, but I might not use it because this is our only opportunity to figure out how much productivity we can get out of our reps. That's a very difficult question to optimize is like when you have a new business, how much productivity can your reps do? That is such a hard thing to optimize because what most people do is they're just like, oh, we're an enterprise business. We're going to pay these people three, four hundred thousand a year and give them a one point two million dollar quarter or two million dollar quarter. Or we're a transactional business. We're going to pay these reps like one hundred twenty thousand a year and give them a six hundred. We peg ourselves to what the industry is in. But that's not what the reps can do. Like it's, it's a really complicated figure. Like what could a rep actually do? Like you're basically like, OK, one static input is a 40 to 50 hour work week. OK, so that's what they're doing. 40 to 50 hours. Now. If I fed a rep 50,000 leads in a month, they could probably do like 3 million a year, but I don't have any leads for anyone else. Or I can feed those 50,000 leads to 50 reps and each of them do a million a year. So now I'm doing 50 million a year as a company as opposed to three with the same 50,000 leads. Like it's a really hard thing to figure out like where do, where's the best way to optimize that? And so this is our one chance is I had a skunk team of four reps who like got us through the product market fit phase. And I'm like, and I sat them, the reps down and I was like, here's the deal. We are ready to scale. Good job. And right now you all are averaging 30,000 ARR a month or 40,000 ARR a month. Okay. And that's fine. The, the numbers work there. I'm going to pay you whatever, 120,000 on quota. And you're going to put in half a million ARR, whatever. I got budget to hire 20 more. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to base like, we have to keep increasing our productivity and I'll pay you. I'm supposed to add two more reps this month and then we're supposed to sell 400,000 of ARR so software this month. I'm not going to add the two reps. I believe the four of you can do it. And they went out and they did it. And I'm like, okay, now I'm supposed to hire two reps again this month and we're supposed to sell 480,000 of revenue. I'm not going to hire the two reps because I think y'all can do it. And they did it. And I paid them more. And that thing maxed out the core sales reps at HubSpot. We're probably bringing in like 40,000 ARR a month. And after this exercise, those four reps, they maxed out at 80,000 ARR each. And then we scaled the team on that. Yep. You saw the tipping point. Yeah, exactly. The core business, and that's a great story, by the way. And were you the CRO at that point? Like, was that, have you been yeah. given the title yep. and everything? Yep. The core business was working at that point. Inbound leads were coming in. At that point, it was probably not called product-led growth. Yeah, correct? It was like freemium or something. Freemium. Like yeah. Was it controversial? Because it was so early. And like, that's not the way that you're supposed to get leads. Like, that's not the way at the time. Now it's Vogue. Now everybody wants to do it, even when they shouldn't be in some cases. At the time, that wasn't the case. Was there any, like, looking to your left and right, feeling a little bit on an island, 
being like, God, no one's really doing this. And other people looking at you, similar to everyone, the conventional wisdom was go up market. The conventional wisdom was build a big BDR team, figure out a channel strategy, drive MQLs that way. I don't know. Not in our company. I don't know outside if it was weird, but we, Drew Houston was at MIT when we were there. We were a lot, we were all friendly. And Drew Houston of Dropbox. Yeah, the founder of Dropbox. Yeah. And he came out like a year or two after HubSpot with yeah. that. And then he did one of the first freemiums quite successfully. And we, Darmesh in particular was quite jealous in a, in a friendly, in a really good way. He was like, they're doing some awesome stuff. I wish we could do that. And we tried it. We tried it in 08. We tried to introduce a free and then a $50 upgrade product. And that I realized then how difficult it is to have an existing install base. Because I think we had $3 million in revenue at that point. And now we're trying to introduce this like freemium thing. And we couldn't come up with anything that wouldn't cannibalize the $3 million And everyone would downgrade. So it's really hard to introduce PLG into an install base after it's already established unless you're willing to take a revenue haircut for a couple quarters as it catches up. And that's why I think PLG is so exciting as a disruptive model because the existing players, it's like their hands are tied. The other thing that we had against us, which I learned about PLG at that time, was you have to have a low time and effort to value prop, like Dropbox. Download this app, your device is backed up. Beautiful. HubSpot was like, buy our software, and if you blog every week, after four months, your leads will go up. That's not low time and effort to value. Right. So we really, like, the marketing software category wasn't PLG-able. But when we went to the CRM, different story. Now's our chance. That makes sense. There was nothing, internally, there was a lot of excitement about it, and they wanted to use this as an opportunity to, like, disrupt the way we sold. It's kind of funny to think, because, like, you're, I associate your whole brand with evangelizing the beauty of PLG as a go-to-market motion. But if you didn't make the decision to go take on the CRM part of the business as the CRO of the business to do this little skunks work project, I don't know, it would have been a very different Probably. I would have a lot less experience. Yeah. And it was Brian and Darmish's decision and their appointment to me to team up with C. Todd to do it. And I was like, okay, so we're we're doing that. And then that's when I learned from C. Todd over this whole thing, growth. And I teach a class at HBS on this now. And so you, you, you're familiar, Juben, like if you look at the org structures of Facebook and Airbnb and Uber and like they have the engineering department and the product department and they have the finance department and the HR department and the sales department and they have the growth department. So there's this like new function that Silicon Valley knows reasonably well, but a lot of the other tech sector doesn't. That's this cross-functional function that owns the funnel. And I started to realize, C. Todd, Christopher O'Donnell, he would like, he was educating me on it. And he's like, one of the best in the world is Brian Balfour. I'm like, oh, I remember Balfour. I remember meeting him in Cambridge like years ago when he was doing some startup. I'm like, oh, I'm going to San Francisco. I'll have drinks with him. So I go out there. We're meeting at like the St. Regis or something on like whatever that area is. And he's like, hey, so what's up? I'm like, yeah, we're doing this new business unit, the CRM, and we want to take a like a growth approach to it. So will you move back to Boston with your wife and do it? And he like laughed. <laughs> I'm like, what's so funny? He's like, cause he's a founder type. He's like, every time like one of these more established unicorns tries to recruit me, like they're never going to put enough like upside in there for someone like me to make sense. I'm more of a founder. I'm like, well, give me a shot. Cause you got a lot of fans internally. 
Darmash is a huge fan. C. Todd's a huge fan. David Cansaw had a product is a huge fan, right? And so we got it done. There was some restriction. There was some. There was a lot of like internal selling to make that happen, but we made it happen. And adding him to that team and getting him to move his wife back, and she was in healthcare, and like it wasn't that easy. That was just I learned a ton from him. It's incredible. And our culture learned a ton from him in his mindset around growth. When I had Chris Degnan on. This was a long time ago, and him and I have spent a lot of time together since. By the way, one of just the gem Amazing. of human, gem of humans. Amazing, yeah. uh, so real. Yeah, I asked him because Chris, for the audience, if you haven't listened to the episode, I would recommend it. But started as employee number seven of Snowflake, now the CRO, first sales rep, pre website. This is very similar timing to you, like early, early, yeah. early, even earlier. Yeah, a lot more zeros at their IPO, that's right. but yeah, <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yeah, I said, Chris, did you ever worry about getting topped? Top being like, you know, they're hiring like a professional sales leader on top of you. You're like young. You've never seen this level of scale. That happens all the time. This company obviously has legs. He's like, yeah, f- yeah. Every quarter. <laughs> exactly. Every quarter. Yeah. Did, what about you? Was that yeah, was always, it, was it always. bona fide for you? Did you no, know no, you were the, no, 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 you no, the guy? Always challenged. Always challenged. And even like at the IPO time, you know, it was time to be topped. But like, yeah, ever since the beginning. I mean, I remember Larry Bond, who Larry was a great partner going. He was our first investor at General Catalyst, great partner at General Catalyst. He came in, wrote that first $5 million check. And we were figuring out the re-ups of our equities. And I was like, Brian's like, yeah, I'm going to try to get in. I wanted to get a certain adjustment. And he came back. He's like, yeah, Larry's pushing back. He thinks we should top you. You've never done sales. And we had like three reps. And I'm like, all right. He's like, I believe in you. Just don't miss your number. So 39 months, didn't miss it. Didn't miss it. No. And then Larry was like, yeah, I think you're pretty good. (laughs) No, but like, you know, that's the thing about sales, right? Like unlike engineering, if there's like qualitative politics or whatever about like, oh, I don't like the engineering leader. It's really hard to defend yourself. So... Let's unpack this. Yeah, yeah. Forty billion dollar company, IPO'd at a billion dollars, I think. Now at fifteen billion, you never have to worry about money again. This is one of the rides that anybody listening dreams of having. It's not Snowflake, but boys, it's not too far off. <laughs> you know, it's not too far off. Never missed a number. Never missed for a the number. thirty-nine months. For thirty-nine, and then, and then we were pretty consistent after that. 30, it wasn't much. Yeah. Thirty-nine months. We had months. a lot of control. Okay, so yeah. like, you read that on paper, and you're like, kidding me? This guy's flying high. Goes to the New York Stock Exchange, rings the bell, like he's made. Must have been amazing. Knowing what you know now, would you do it all over again at that point? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing all that. I mean, it was super stressful ride. Everyone's like, you must be having a blast. And I never, I was like, am I having a blast? Like it was always super stressful. But yeah, all those, to come out the other end, you know, I think I'm trying to remember like what my motivations were then. It was like, it kind of goes all the way back to the Accenture days where I saw myself being kitty cornered into, okay, you're like an SAP implementation guy. Okay, you're an SAP implementation guy for the healthcare industry. Okay, you're a SAP integration guy for the healthcare industry in New York. You know what I mean? It's like, I didn't want to be like that little thing. And I got staffed on a startup and I'm like, wow, this is it. This is like everything I want from like changing the world to the financial upside to wearing whatever you want when you go to work because you're valued by how smart you are and how you execute, not by like how expensive your suit is and how you can play the political game. I just wanted to be a successful entrepreneur. And part of that meant 
getting the financial autonomy to do whatever. And I thought HubSpot would be like, okay, go out and put some money in the bank and be able to take a little time off and breathe and do the next one. And Brad and Dharmesh had had success, so they pushed us all the way to the end, you know, to something much bigger. So that's, that's great. So yeah, definitely do it again. There's this weird thing where we're not allowed to talk about how hard really successful things are because we're supposed to be grateful for those really successful things. Like, I think that's really dumb. And actually, I think it's uninspirational. Define stress. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? I mean, I saw Henry Shook's a good buddy and like, I saw you titled yours like the CEO job. This isn't supposed to be fun or something yeah, like yeah, that. That yeah. was a brilliant title. Oh gosh. Ugh. The Zoom Info CEO. I'm seeing stress. him in a couple of days. I mean, first off, if you carried a quote, you, you, for to do anything like super successful, you kind of feel like you have to have a number on your head. It doesn't have to be sales. I mean, if you're CEO of a company, a public company, whatever, you're always chasing a number. If you're running a VC firm, I'm always chasing a number. Like you're always, if you're doing something huge, you're chasing a number. And that's super stressful with all the things out of your control and you just have to be super calculated. I mean, gosh, like just when things are going south and the emails you're getting from the board and the executive team, you wake up that morning, three of your top reps quit. But why would they quit? I don't understand. Like why? Grass is always greener. I'm 25 years old and like, I missed my number twice. Like I don't get the leads I used to get. Must be better somewhere else. I can't think of anyone where it was like better somewhere else. I'm not trying to be like no, no egotistic I, about it. But it's just like, and we didn't know either. Maybe it was going to be, but it just wasn't. It, totally. I had Amanda Cleon, who was the chief customer officer of Zendesk, and she's like, you wouldn't believe how many people quit. Hundreds Zendesk. in my under my jurisdiction, it's thousands in the whole company, but under my jurisdiction. Hundreds of people are like kicking themselves. And you hit the number 39 times in a row. And people were still, hundreds of people were leaving. Yeah, well, that was over, over, time. over 10 sure. years. And that first, that was obviously three years. But yeah, dozens of people left. Dozens. In their defense, there was challenges. Tell me if I'm wrong, but like I was reading some stuff about some stability in the product was not yeah. totally there. Totally. Churn there was, was like terrible. Churn. Churn was terrible during the entire 10 years. Because I mean, it's SMB. Yeah. And it's like our product wasn't executed well in the first couple of years. It took us a long time to clean that up. So yeah, there are a lot. And I changed the comp plan to be aligned with Churn. And you have a crappy product. So of course people are going to quit. They were tough decisions. I mean, it's always on the outside. You read the newspaper, the success article, and it sounds like a blast. I do this myself when I read about like Figma and Slack and all the winners years ago it must be they must just be like champagne but it's like no it's a grind even the most successful ones it's always like oh we were one month away from bankruptcy we had the eight percent monthly churn we had two executives leave in one month it's an absolute grind it always is if you knew if you had the perspective now and you're talking to the reps that are leaving would you have done or said anything differently obviously if you're like look like in November of 2021, this thing's going to be a $40 billion company. Obviously, that's a different thing. But like, do you ever think, could I have gotten them to think differently or like the mission or anything like that? Or do you just find that as a byproduct of high growth? Um, does the question make sense? No, it does. It does. Like, could I have said some things to potentially have saved them a little bit? I think we did a lot. Well, of like give them perspective. Yeah. It's, because it's so many hard. people get wrapped up in this yeah. thing. Exactly. I mean, and again, we just didn't know, right, like how successful it would be too. But certainly over the years, I had 
more data points of like, look at this person that left two years ago. Look at what they're up to. They've had three different jobs. So I get, and I do this a lot now with our portfolio. If I go out and do like a keynote at their kickoff or whatever, that's definitely like a story that I'll tell. It's just like, you know, I have a lot of people here and just like, first off, appreciate how special you have what's going on. I know it's hard, but it's special. It's one of those stories you'll take to your grave and you'll never forget. And don't be so quick to jump when it does get hard because look at all these people who had regrets. And so I think I could have like, if maybe you're out there right now listening and you're experiencing this, I think what I might specifically have delivered is appreciate appreciate your honesty. And, you know, if you move on, you move on. We had a great relationship. I'll always say good things about you. But little word, you're going to regret this because I've seen these people here and seven out of seven of them, they've been just trying to find the next thing time and time again. And I'm worried that's going to happen to you. Just look at this. Take the evening. Come back to me tomorrow. If the decision still is to move on, great. Part good ways. But if it's to stay, we keep this conversation between us and never look back. I'd probably do something a little more like that and give them a shot. You have talked about, actually you haven't talked about, but you briefly mentioned it to me, struggling with anxiety. And I I struggle, like I'm very, this is more of a selfish conversation because I struggle with it a lot. And I don't actually know how to talk about it very well because it's a weird thing to talk about. And again, like in a high-performing culture where things are going really well, it's a tough thing to talk about because it's like, well, what do you have to be anxious about? Sometimes like I put so much pressure on myself to just do a great job. Like even here, like I'm coming here and I'm like, this is going to be a home run thing with Mark. I'm going to Harvard campus. I know exactly what I'm getting into. It's going to be awesome. But I was really anxious and I was trying to figure out in the Uber, like, where is that anxiety coming from? And it's because I wanted it to be great. I just put so much pressure on myself to deliver the goods. I want this to be super valuable for people when they listen. So maybe that's a really long setup for like, is that how you experience it? And how did that feel in hypergrowth during those 39 months or whatever it was? Like, was it present? Was it worse? Yeah, I think I probably experienced general level of anxiety, which I think you're kind of talking about. And that's probably like what maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing like a quarter of the population experiences for various reasons where it's public speaking or like being, I don't know, for all different triggers. But I had debilitating anxiety, and I, I've had two significant bouts of it. One was when I first discovered the degree of my anxiety was right after the, uh, the 2001 World Trade Center situation where I was at the Trade Center. I was at Ground Zero and made it through there. But six months later, some weird stuff started to happen in my head. Like I felt like I was in a fishbowl, and I couldn't talk, and I couldn't breathe. And I thought I was having like a stroke or something. And I went to the emergency room and they're like, no, you're having a severe anxiety attack. And I had about a six month bout where if you've seen the movie, what about Bob? Mm -hmm. I was pretty close. Whoa. Like hard to leave the house. So it was severe. And I had to go through a lot of therapy. So a little bit of medication, some natural techniques like meditation and that I've in yoga that I've taken through my life. And I got under control and actually became a pretty good public speaker for a different reason. And then during HubSpot, I had another major one. I was toward the end of my time there. I was giving a speech in front of the company. I had one and I just shut down. In the middle of speech. Yeah, just shut down. Like everyone's like, ooh, what happened, dude? Like you had a stroke. You just like 
stopped, like you started blabbering. And I had another six month recovery from that. So extreme anxiety. And I've got a small amount of medication that I use and breathing techniques and all that stuff. So, you know, I talk about it because there is a stigma associated with it. I think we're crawling out of it. I think the current generation of like millennials and Gen Z's are much more open about it and forgiving about it and don't carry that stigma. There shouldn't be a stigma. And, you know, I'm a bit of like a spiritual Buddhist now and I'm always looking for my purpose and stuff. And one of those purposes is to talk about this because for whatever reason, society values some of the things that I have accomplished. But when I admit to everyone that I have severe anxiety, it gives other people comfort in talking about. I've had a lot of people approach me about that to talk it through. And so it should be something that we, I don't know, like a disability, I suppose, that we can be more public about, whether it's depression, anxiety, any sort of mental illness. So that was, that was my piece. Wow. Yeah. On the second example that you gave on the HubSpot thing, what triggered it? I don't know. I don't know. And then the six-month recovery, like you're just in home? Oh, uh, no. It's battling through it. Like I don't, I want to take it face on. Like the first one happened in an airplane, I want to get right back in an airplane. Second one happened on a stage, I want to get right back on the stage. They all have like different triggers and where it was. The second one was largely around public speaking because I, that's where I had the breakdown. And so it took me like six months of like getting back out there all the time. Like, oh my gosh. I went back to my like canned speech just because I was comfortable with it. My preparation time for a speech went from 15 minutes to five hours, you know, of like practice and visualization. It was just cranking through it. The first one, the trigger was on the plane. Yeah, that's where it ended up being a little bit like I, you know, obviously 9-11, everyone had their own experience. And what do you mean you're like, you're right. I lived across the street. So I was there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, when I left my apartment, I had to block my eyes from glass that was coming down. Like I was there, right. You know, some really sad things happened that day. And I was very fortunate that I lost one friend, but nothing else major for in my life in particular. But then like six months later, all these like weird, this weird thing happened to me and what felt like a stroke. And actually, I didn't know much about panic attacks and anxiety at the time. But then when someone diagnosed me, it was like to the T textbook in terms of the timing of it, like post-traumatic stress disorder. It was like exactly the timing. So that one was largely triggered in airplanes and confined spaces where I couldn't like get out. It's insane, man. I appreciate you sharing. One of the things that I think a lot about is during scale, when entrepreneurs and operators are scaling through these triples, doubles, these just like insanely exponential compounding companies, I believe that the psychology of scale is actually more difficult than the tactics of scale. Probably right. More people talk about the tactics. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I believe you can learn the tactics from others, bring on people to help you, hire people, advisors, all of those things. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, psychology is a big play. I'm trying to like bring that back to my world because it's like there's so many. Like the endurance. Yeah. That, I mean, because I'll give you an example. It's like I warn my students when like they're on the founder track and they're signing up to 80 hours a week. Don't see your friends. Don't see your family. Ramen noodles. I'm like, Just be careful. That's the story. And that might be the first six months, but you can't last 10 years. You know, they always say the classic, like, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And that certainly applies here. But I'll give you specifics on what that was for me. Pretty much 
every day, my calendar was blocked from 2 to 3.30, and I worked out, you know, all through the crazy journey. I was trying to figure out my work ex- out schedule because I had a, an hour commute from the North Shore. For a couple months, I was trying to get up at 5 a.m. to run before, and that was hard. A couple of months, I was trying to get home at 8 o'clock and run after dinner, and that was hard. And I realized, why don't I just join a gym right next to my office, cruise out at 2 every day. I have my stuff there. No one even knows I'm gone, so I don't have to worry about the cultural impact. In fact, like nowadays, maybe people might talk about it, but I had to do it. That was me. When everyone else smoked a butt or played foosball, I went for a run. And I did my, like, I was up at 7 on the phone, drove into work. By the time 2 o'clock hit, I had had 7-hour day in. I went for my run. I was ready for the next 7 hours. So I did that every day. And I can't tell you how many, like, huge quarterly, like, the minute you slip on anything to push that, you're screwed. I did not let that slip, no matter what was competing with it. And the other piece was my, my young family during that journey. I left the office, and people knew this. I left the office at 3.30 every Wednesday and Friday to see my kids. So every Wednesday and Friday, I had a good five, six-hour stretch, You know, had dinner with them, put them down, put them through the shower routine on Wednesday and Friday. And every weekend, I worked, never when they were awake. During the two-hour nap, 7.30, they were in bed. I mean, they were three and four, whatever. You know, they were in bed at 7.30. I could have put five hours in on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. So I found my 80 hours, but I still... I was a very present dad, I think, given the job I took on, and I maintained my health. Can you talk about what career ADHD is? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Can you talk sure. about that? Yeah, it's just that once you figured out the job, you want to move on to the next one. And why yeah. do you think startups, I think the way that you described it was that like startups are very good for people like that. Because the job changes as your scale. I mean, just look at my role in particular, and we can translate that to any other function. I start out in 2007, I'm the only rep. You can picture my job. Mm-hmm. Sell customers, call, demo, discovery, negotiate. Six months later, I'm sales manager, hire a rep a month. Nine months after that, I'm sales director, promote your first three managers. Nine months after that, I'm VP of sales, have rev ops align with the sales directors and teach these directors to teach managers. I'm the type of person that would get bored in the role after doing it for two years. And that's necessary for scaling. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about what to do, and this is an honest question, tell me the reasons why, if you have all the qualities that would make someone successful at a startup, and you've defined these, you've actually put data on the board to say like coachability, curiosity, work ethic, intelligence, prior success. Those are the things that generally you've identified as leading indicators of success at a startup. Definitely in, 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 in the go-to-market yeah, yep. Exactly, yep. If you have that, what are the good reasons to not join a startup at like product market fit? And you can define product market fit however you want, but... Yeah, I mean, the risk-reward equation might not make sense there. If you're a founder, the risk is the highest. You're at the beginning. The chances of failure is the highest at the start but your equity is pretty substantial and the market has a reasonable perception of what founders should, as long as they stay in the CEO or C-suite, what equity they should own. You're at series B. Should it, is it bad if a founder owns 15%? Oh, it's, they did a good job with their capital raise. Great. Can a VP of sales get 15%? No, they'd throw that out unless they, there's just a market on that. Right? So there's this 
market perception of what founders should, can retain of a business. And there's a market perception of what early employees can retain two, three percent, four percent, five percent, whatever. If you're not the founder to come in a quarter later where you're taking on all that risk without the equity position, that might not make sense. And lots of times, like I, students here, but I, other folks, even I came up in our conversation a little bit, like when you, you're talking like you're doing great at Kleiner and everything, but if Kleiner went away, what would you do? Like all, kind of whole thing. And there's a part of you that's like, likes to found, you know, start stuff. And that's the same with my students. And I'm always like, do you code? And my students like, no, I'm like, you shouldn't start something in tech. Right. If they're like, oh, I want to start an apparel company. I'm like, all right, have you designed and manufactured clothing before? No. Well, you shouldn't start something. You're in love with the allure of starting something but you probably don't possess the skills that are most important at that stage. Let them do that stuff. Our job is to come in at the go-to-market fit phase and professionalize the sales system. The founder, the product founder's job is to take 10 bets where one hits, but they own 20%. And by the way, their bets take 10 years. Our job is to join after product market fit, scale the sales system where one in every three hits. And by the way, we know in four years. Less upside, less risk, shorter duration. That's how I see things. And that would be a reason why if you possess all these things, it doesn't always make sense to join at a particular stage because of that, the risk reward. That said, sons, daughters? Two boys. Two boys. 15 and 14. Yep. All right. So they're going to be in the workforce in five mm-hmm. years. What are you going to tell them? You can say, Hey, they're like that. I don't know. Should I go to Microsoft, Amazon? Should I go to Cloudflare or you know, Snowflake? That's not what they're asking. But uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say they have the conversation at 21 years old. Where do you advise them to go? I mean, everything there was tech, right? I don't Yay. even know. Like, yeah, well. <laughs> so, so reality, like they do whatever they want. I just want them to be happy and like don't focus. Let's on assume they tech. wanted to go to tech. Okay. Yeah. If they went into tech, also it depends what they're doing. But I would say, so this is the advice that I actually give my students and I would give the same to them is first off, go to startup. And I define startup as anything before IPO. Okay. Do that because it's going to be fast moving. They have less of a tendency to promote based on length of experience. You know, like there are 26 year old CEOs. They tend to more gravitate toward like execution and smarts. Right. So I like that. You pick a winner. It could make your career. But within there, everything from the seed funded business up to the pre-IPO business, I don't think you have to make that much of a choice because it's very similar networking. And there's other aspects to that decision, like who your boss is and how you like the company and the culture. I I would hate for you to say, I want to join a pre-IPO company. And then you meet the seed funded business where you love the boss, you love the culture, you love the team, you love what they're doing. Like join that. I'd hate for you to go find this pre-IPO company and you love what the company does, but your boss is questionable. There's not that much growth, et cetera. There's so much more than just like the stage aspect. So I think go to a startup. That means anything pre-IPO. Network on everything from seed up to pre-IPO and look at the other aspects like your boss and their mission, et cetera. But if I had to pick a stage, it would probably be A to B. You briefly mentioned a story in one of the f***ing podcasts that I listened to <laughs> where this guy... You randomly met him, and he was a big fan of yours. 
and his name is Lauren Paddleford. Oh, yeah. I think episode number five or six for me. Yeah. I didn't even make it through your story in this podcast. I was working out this morning, (laughs) and I heard his name, and I'm like, oh, my God. Called him immediately, and I'm like, Lauren. (laughs) You know Mark? He's like, oh, yeah. We sat down, and... Mark started asking me some questions about Shopify, and he said, how many reps do you have? And I said, four or five, and he said, how much are they doing? I think the answer was something ludicrous. And you were like, sorry, what? And he tells you again, and you were like, you're done. Like, if this is true, which you didn't believe, like, you're going to make it. Like, you're done. This is the last ride of your life. Turns out, you were right. He was done. It was an amazing ride for him. So I was talking to him on the phone, and I'm like, all right. He's sitting down with Mark for a beer. What's your question? He said, looking backwards, knowing what you know about how the tech markets and everything else, go-to-market strategies, everything, have played out over the last decade, what would you have done differently at HubSpot? All right, let me think about that. I'll tell you that the Lauren story is actually quite funny, just to give you the double-click on it real quick. Because like as HubSpot started to grow in notoriety... I did start to get a lot of inbound inquiries to chat. Hey, I'm starting a sales team. Can I get your advice? And I love helping entrepreneurs. So I'm trying to make time for it. So I had this hour to and from work commute. And so I had my assistant use that 30-minute blocks, two of them and both rides to talk to these folks. And I remember I was crossing like the bridge over here and Lauren came on and I asked those questions like you said to try to see is this person like who's has a thousand sales reps or do they have one sales rep? I need to figure out their context. And that you're exactly right. I'm like, okay, how many reps you got? He's like four. I'm like, okay. He's And he's asking questions like a series A company, you know, like, what do I look for in a rep? How are you compensating all this stuff? And then I'm like, wait a minute, how many customers do you guys have? He's like 25,000. I'm like, how much revenue do you have? He's like a hundred million. Right, 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 right. That's when I was like, dude, you're going to be so rich. Like <laughs> to layer a four person sales team on an install base of 25,000 customers, 100, oh my gosh. So anyway, knowing what I know about the tech markets, what would I do differently about HubSpot? Well, I think the entire executive team would answer that the exact same way. And that is, it took us years to figure out that the number one North Star metric was not revenue growth, but retention. And as the years go by, that's a less profound statement, but like SaaS didn't get it then. Like it's all retention. And early on, we were obsessed with revenue growth. And I will tell you that the ecosystem still is. Like when you describe how your startup's doing, you don't say, oh, we have 120% net dollar retention. You say we're triple, triple, double, double. The first thing is revenue. And as an investor, the first thing you ask about is revenue. We're obsessed with revenue growth. And it's the absolute wrong metric at various phases, especially early on. And the right metric is customer retention. That's a big difference that, a huge, huge strategic difference that we and I should, would have done differently is to make that the North Star metric right out of the gate. We would have much, built a much better business. And that's a big part of my work at Stage 2 Capital and my recent work in Science of Scaling that I teach is really rooted in that principle. Science of Scaling is the name of the book, right? 
Is that what's the name of the book? But the book I wrote right at the end of HubSpot is the Sales Acceleration. That's formula. right. Yeah, yeah, okay. And this is a new one. I've read a forty-five page ebook, e-book. on science of scaling, which is different. Which class was called at here at Harvard? Decoding growth in Silicon Valley. Is uh-huh. that that's that, one of my classes? That's one of your classes. Uh-huh. Do they get it here? I don't really know how to ask you this without asking you it directly. Like, do people understand a how great these jobs are? Start there. B, how go to market can be as much of a competitive advantage as product. And you know, the argument that you generally make is that those lines start to blur pretty significantly in the modern go to market machine. And C, is there like this stigma still of like, like, do they really get it? It's getting better, and I, this is not. I'm not going to answer this from like the perspective of HBS, yeah. but I think all MBAs are kind of the same. Fifteen years ago, many people would claim that most MBA programs were feeders for banking and consulting. And in 08, with the financial crisis, banking became far less attractive. I think for folks, and especially like around that time, entrepreneurship grew even more, and so you saw like a much higher appetite and interest in entrepreneurship from the MBAs. And that naturally leads into higher interest in the functions that are necessary to do great entrepreneurship, i.e. product, marketing, and sales. And so because of that, it's a very changing and evolving mindset. It's no longer, oh, I'm just going to make a ton of money at Goldman Sachs or McKinsey coaching like Fortune 100 CEOs on strategy to... I'm going to start a business. I'm going to run a business as a startup. And I know that I need to know how to do product and I know how to do sales. So they appreciate it. In my class is one of the most popular. You know, it's like it fills with two, we have two, I think two sections of 80 in it that get 300 signups for it. There's a lot of popular classes here, but it's an oversubscribed class. Okay. So they get it. Are they like dying to go out and carry a bag? No. Every year there's like 10 or so of them to do. So there's still a little like, I think, honestly, more fear than there is snottiness about it. I wish more of them did, but, you know, they still go out and they're founders and they sell. And every year it's exciting to see that our founder cohort that graduates, I think, are selling much better every year that goes by. So So you do this. You had a full course load, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was full time. And then have you... Eased off the gas yep, a little part bit. Part-time now. Part-time yep. now. The reason for that was because you started Stage 2 Capital, which we talked about briefly earlier. Congrats. You recently raised an $80 million fund too? Yep. We and have- we'll be announcing our next fund shortly. Congrats. Thank you. One of the things that was brought up to me was that like you're very family-oriented. You've made the money. Like You've done the thing. You've done all the things that you wanted to kind of do in that respect. And... Starting a venture firm is a full-time gig. It's like a real commitment. Starting it from scratch, it's so hard. What was that decision-making process like? The reflection that I had when I came over here and looking back on a lot of the big wins, you know, like going to HubSpot, going to sales, writing the book, joining the faculty at Harvard Business School, I did not pursue any of those those things sort of fell on my lap. They were presented to me. I had a vision for where I was going. Those things were presented to me and were not in the plan. And thank God I had an open mind to be like, hmm, that could be interesting and that could be worth distracting myself from the plan to see if there's something there. 
And so that's been a huge part of my life philosophy now. It's a little more Buddhist, which is like, I don't have a plan. I am at the golf course or on the beach and people present me with stuff. And I do look at it from the lens of like, okay, holistically, I know how much time I want to be a dad, how much time I want to be a yogi, how much time I want to run, how much time I want to be with my family, how much time I want to work. But within that work time, that time is dedicated to helping the entrepreneur ecosystem. I'm not pursuing anything, but I'm listening to what people suggest. Like, do you want to be on your podcast? Is that worth it? And I'm choosing the stuff that makes the biggest impact. And Harvard's like, hey, would you teach a sales course? Well, that's an honor. That's going to make a big impact. Not just because they bring the 900 amazing students here every year, because there's 30 million cases sold to all the other business schools that I write on sales. And so you influence how sales is taught everywhere. That's an honor. And that's a responsibility that I should take on. It's not an ego thing. It's just like, hey, they wanted me to do it. I'll give it a shot and see if it works. And then when Jay Poe, my co-founder, was over at Bessemer and he's like, can we talk? I'm like, yeah, sure. You're from Bessemer. You're probably doing some cool things. He talks. He's like, I'm a revenue VC. I'm like, what's a revenue VC? He's like, I'm not going to be the purebred finance person. I know that everything is about sales and revenue. And I'm a scholar of sales. I went to BDR school every Saturday the last couple months. In fact, I have a job offer to be a VP of sales at one of our portfolio companies. I'm like, really, dude? You went to Harvard? Then you went right into, v you've never operated before. I'm like, this guy knows his stuff. He's legit. He's actually studying sales and knowing stuff. He's actually the first person that said, go to market fit to me. Brilliant. And he's like, will you do an incubator with me on go to market for the portfolio? I was like, sure. So we did it. He's really smart. And then he's like, okay, this is a fund. I'm like, what do you mean this is a fund? He's like, we have to start the first VC fund that's run and backed by VPs of sales, VPs of marketing, VPs of customer success, RevOps. There's a lot of bad advice being thrown around out there in the boardroom on sales. And I'm like, you're right. I'm in the boardroom. It's really bad advice. And I'm like, you're right. If we build this, this would be a huge addition. And this would be a platform that checks off my first principle. I never thought I'd be a VC. It wasn't of interest to me. But if I could do it on these terms, that's kind of what I'm probably supposed to do. Here's my network of buddies that are CROs of public companies. See what they say. So at that point, I hadn't decided to do it. I was just like, it's an idea that has a lot of, that checks my first principle and would be really big. It's like a little bit of lean startup mini tests. Just kind of like, okay, see what my buddies say. Then all 20 of them gave them money. And they had 10 other referrals. And then within four months, we had 100 of them. And we maxed out the SEC limit for the fund that we set up. We couldn't do any more. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let's invest it now and see if the entrepreneurs value this. And sure enough, with like one deal under our belt, we want to deal against a top tier firm because the entrepreneur was interested in sales help. And I'm like, geez, the entrepreneurs like this. And so I'm like, let's see if our methodology of the science of scaling thing that I've been teaching, inspired by the board work that I've been doing, works out. And that, you know, we started seeing great revenue acceleration, et cetera. So like it was a sequence of many steps. It wasn't me like, oh, I should start a VC firm now. It was a, a kid with a good idea that pitched me and I tested him with various things and he crushed it. Do you miss operating? No. <laughs> a lot of people like struggled with the consulting lifestyle and consulting in the VC lifestyle is similar as an operator because you do manage a lot of different portfolios. A lot of people struggle with that. Like I don't have my team. They don't necessarily tell me what, I can't just tell them what to do and they do it. 
I live and breathe and it's one venture all day. It's really hard to switch between them. I love the switching between them. I love having 30 bets on the table. You know, I love not having all my eggs in one basket. I love thinking about 30 very different business models every day, every week. But that's unique. A lot of people like to focus. Me too. Well, dude, I appreciate you. This is amazing. Thank you. I got to get you to your class, I think. I always end these things the same way. I'll tell you, this is the first time where I'm not sure how to ask part one of the question, which is, are you hiring? Because I'm not exactly sure. I guess we could give a shout out to like, are any of your portfolio companies hiring? You want to shout them out? Any of the above. I mean, sure. The portfolio companies, we've got a really cool feed from their careers page into stage two. There's a stage two careers page. You can do a sort by location function in our portfolio. We believe in them. They're hiring. You can check that out. That'd be great. And then, yes, stage two, like we're scaling an interesting model where we have two person investment pods. One has more of a go to market experience from like a VP of sales, VP of marketing. And we team them up with a more traditional finance investor. And we hope to continue to raise more funds and scale those pods. We have three of those pods running today. So we're always hiring that. And we have an accelerator that we're doing that we're hiring around. But, you know, you have VC is there's not like we're you don't have like 50 hires a year. I guess there's always ways to get involved, too, if you like our mission, yep. whether it's with the accelerator or et cetera. Last one. What does the word grit mean to you? It means the internal strength and to persevere through adversity and to look at failure as an iteration, not an endpoint, which I think is so correlated with the people that succeed. Mark Roberge, thank you. Thanks, you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.